Welcome to Modern Aikidoist Podcast. My sincere thanks to listeners and those who have liked, subscribed, and commented. Your interest is noticed and deeply appreciated. Today's podcast is about where we should look for guidance when it comes to Aikido's direction. We must start by realizing that Aikido will always be evolving and changing. No martial art stays the same as time passes. It changes. The question is, will it change for the better or the worse? What influences should we be seeking when it comes to growing our own Aikido? Should we look only to Osensei or his direct students? What about using other arts as inspiration and taking things which work well for them? I'm a huge fan of boiling things down to their essence as much as possible in order to understand them. In order to address these questions, it seems that we must identify whether it is the person which draws us or a high level of understanding of physical conflict. Now when I say the person, I mean, is it the ultimate desire to follow Osensei and try to stick as closely as possible to his message in order to gain his remarkable abilities? Basically, any skill or understanding we attain must come through him as directly as possible. I find this approach is problematic for a number of reasons. When you follow the will of only one person, that is the basis of a cult. When you follow a principle which is based in reality, then you avoid the dangers of following a single person. It is a fact that Osensei was a phenom of his time. This is very likely a debatable statement, but from the stories of Osensei's abilities, he was in the same realm as Bruce Lee when it came to extraordinary talent and physical ability. When challenged, he never lost nor failed to impress. He often had experienced practitioners immediately ask to become students. Osensei was an extremely impressive martial artist by all accounts. A very common sentiment you see expressed is that Aikido does not have to adjust to modern times. It really only needs to go back to where it was when Osensei was alive. I think this perspective is flawed in a number of ways. The main flaw is hinged on Osensei himself and the belief that his art was near perfect, which I believe he would disagree with, and that his message was clear. There are a few facts which are not in dispute. First is, he's been dead for 50 years. Second is, even when he was alive, his speeches and writings were so confusing as to be called incoherent. People who were his students for years and decades admitted they never knew or understood what he was talking about. He rarely, if ever, spoke of technical aspects of performing a technique. Instead, he went into long speeches of a religious or esoteric nature, which baffled everyone. I find it surprising that anyone who wasn't present could make any claim whatsoever to understand his message when people who knew him well had no idea what he meant. By modern standards, or even standards at the time, Osensei was a poor teacher. A good teacher provides clarity, and there really is no clarity in Osensei's words. Those who claim to understand Osensei are always guilty of cherry-picking a few statements of his to base their understanding from. Usually they use those few statements to justify their pre-existing belief system. With every statement usually quoted, Osensei has other statements which contradict them or actions which are in direct contradiction to them. Don't get me wrong, I have great respect for what the man was capable of. He was, like all of us, a flawed human being with many contradictions. We won't get far by deifying him or treating his confusing statements or writings as gospel. My interest is in finding out the truth, as much as can be had. One can certainly try to sort out his message, but what makes it even more difficult is that the writings he left were edited by others, so we don't even have access to the direct source. Not that I think that that would be much help. As I understand it, one of the tasks of editing was to remove the most confusing and irrelevant aspects of his writings. Additionally, translating Japanese to English is also notoriously difficult with frequent misunderstandings. 
My conclusion at this point is there just isn't a great deal of clarity available from Osensei as a source at this time. That may change if writings emerge in the future, but I highly doubt any significant additional source material will appear. Rather than waiting around for that to happen or engage in more arguments about his meaning or intent, I think there's another aspect to consider. That is, not being as focused on following the person, but following what drove him. Osensei sought to understand physical conflict so he could master it. In doing so, his will and dedication brought him to the level of mastery. He also found out what master negotiators have, which is to approach conflict to find a win-win result if it's possible. Many modern Aikidoka, particularly the pacifist types, believe Osensei would avoid letting harm come to his attacker at all costs. History paints a far different picture of Osensei, though. He clearly stated that true Aikido would likely injure or even kill an attacker. Harmony doesn't mean tranquility. That concept could very well be an entire discussion all on its own. Back to the topic, Osensei was seeking a vision far beyond following a person, which is what made him an innovator. And we should be doing the same thing. Rather than seeking personalities to follow, we should be following a vision. We must be ready to find other sources, not just one, for inspiration and to fulfill our own vision. A number of Osensei's students were extremely skilled practitioners and better teachers. They did far better at describing and conveying concepts and principles than Osensei did. The problem is that they did so in different ways from one another and often disagreed about their methods. It's a shame that they could not reconcile their differences because each had valuable insights to what made their Aikido work. Each of them are valuable sources in their own right and made notable contributions to Aikido. Maybe there would have been fewer disagreements if Osensei had been more clear. We'll never know. I think we can also find insights from outside the Aikido world. There are many such resources which are valuable. The thing about physical conflict is there really isn't anything new under the sun. I think it's safe to say that anything you think is probably new, whether it is an attack or a technique, has very likely happened sometime or somewhere in the past. It may have been lost in time or merely is something you have never seen or heard of. If it was effective at all, it probably was part of some system or art somewhere. Something may be new to you, but that doesn't mean it's new. History has some great sources, but they are challenging to decipher. There are books, manuals, and manuscripts going as far back as the Middle Ages containing techniques and instructions for hand-to-hand -hand deadly combat. The great thing about these is they were written by people who did combat for a living and who had a great deal of first-hand experience with it. I'm talking about fighting to the death. These were professionals, and I count them as very solid sources. The only problem is that the texts are often written in languages which are difficult to translate and illustrations which are not easy to make out. Another aspect is they are addressing a different culture where certain knowledge is already assumed to exist, knowledge that we may not have as a current starting point. An example is that Osensei did not teach techniques from the judo curriculum. I think the best reason for this is so many of his students were experienced judo practitioners already, so why teach them what they already know? The problem is what happens when a student comes in with no judo background and your curriculum lacks judo's best techniques? That student will never get the best of what judo has to offer because the curriculum has purposefully avoided it. I don't blame Aikido or any particular instructor. This is what happens to an art as it becomes more specialized. It focuses, even hyper-focuses, on certain aspects and tends to ignore others. It often ignores very valuable things, and the result are practitioners who are not well-rounded martial artists. The fascinating part about these historical sources 
is their message has not been watered down over a couple of centuries of teacher-to-student misunderstandings and politics. The techniques and approaches they used were also not blunted for civilian application. They were straight application of extremely dangerous techniques under the highest level of stress and resistance. Martial arts of many cultures got toned down quite a bit in the 18th and 19th centuries when physical combat evolved more into the civilian realm and became sports. Military combat arts have always been more no-nonsense and brutal. These sources, which are from the military side of combat arts, provide some valuable insights from extremely capable people. They're not perfect and take some work to figure out, but I find they are very illuminating. Hand-to-hand -hand combat really hasn't changed in millennia. The study of martial sports provides some valuable insights too, and they should not be overlooked. Granted, many modern martial sports are hybrids to some degree or other. This makes it difficult to accurately assess whether what works well in a given sport would not have glaring weaknesses in hand-to-hand -hand combat. There is good stuff to be had from them, though. I find that many practitioners and athletes tend to have a little too much confidence in their art, sometimes way too much, and it makes dismissing other sources easy. Doing this can make you miss some great things other arts have to offer. One thing I really admire about Bruce Lee was his dedication to looking everywhere for anything that worked well. He examined very closely everything he was taught to see if it was worthwhile keeping, whether it needed to be modified to work better or abandon it completely. His dedication to excellence didn't include holding on to things which didn't work well out of a sense of duty or obligation. Such an attitude is extremely rare in the martial arts. It is truly sad that his life was cut short. Just imagine what he would have developed had he lived into his 80s as Osensei did. We would have seen much more refinement and evolution of his art, I'm sure. Bruce spent a great deal of time and research finding diverse sources for the most useful and practical techniques. One could say that Osensei did something very similar, with his art becoming a blend of a variety of sources. There is one thing I think Bruce Lee and Osensei had in common when it comes to their approach. That is, they both saw the importance of intercepting the intention of attack. Lee felt it so important that he named his art after it, Jeet Kune Do, or the Way of the Intercepting Fist. You can see Osensei move to intercept attacks repeatedly in demonstration films. He never waits for attacks to form before making a decisive movement. He frequently used strikes as intercepts. The major difference is that Lee kept on to the striking attacks where Osensei favored throws, joint locks, and pins for a finish. I've read that in the last year or two of his life, Bruce Lee started to explore throws and grappling more. My guess is that Bruce Lee would probably have seen the value in this and adopted more of it into his own style in time. Remember, Bruce Lee died a young man. He had a lot of innovation left in him, and it would have been fascinating to see where his art went over time, especially as he grew older. Osensei's art evolved a great deal over his lifetime, too. It pays to look to our predecessors and their teachings, but there is a good saying to keep in mind. Don't spend too much time looking back, because that's not where you are heading anyway. There must be a balance between researching solid ideas and material and putting them into your current training. Perhaps look at it this way. Do not search for the answers, but search for clues. The clues will help guide your training so you can find the answers for yourself. You will find the truth through experimentation. Use your own talent and passion, in addition to what your teachers show you, and take from other sources. Be wary of taking what anyone says as gospel truth. What works for them may not work for you. A good instructor will encourage you to find what works for you. If your instructor inhibits this process, you probably have a poor instructor. I wish I could say that instructors who do that are rare in the martial arts, but they are not. We should be seeking the best for ourselves and our students. 
that we can all reach our potential and push our boundaries farther out. That is the looking forward aspect to our journey. We can look back to gather ideas for learning and practice, but we must make sure our studies come out on the mat. If we take this approach, Aikido will change for the better. At least, if you take this approach, your Aikido will, and that is really all that matters. What are other topics you're interested in hearing covered in this podcast? Please share your ideas in the comments if you're watching this on YouTube, or go to the Facebook group Aikido the Marshall Side and post a comment there. You can also support this podcast by donating either through a monthly sponsorship or a single donation of any amount you like. I always enjoy hearing from listeners of the show, whether through comments or questions. Thank you all for sharing your interest. Enjoy your training.